Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now let's begin by bagging these bongos. Hey, hello, and welcome to episode 173 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. As you may be able to hear, I've still got a a little lingering sore throat from when I had COVID a few weeks ago. Well, before I start, as ever, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you like what you hear and you'd like to give us a bit of support, you can do so via our Patreon page. If you go over to the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile, you'll find a Linktree drop-down box. And that'll direct you over to our Patreon page. But if you're not able to do that, or you just don't want to, that's absolutely fine. This content is free for everyone. Well, this week I um, I took part in a discussion on prisoner art at the law school at the University of Warwick. Our backdrop was a superbly curated display of prisoner art, thanks to Kersler Arts. Oh, and as I said, it was superbly curated. It was curated by um, me. Excellent discussion as well. It was uh, two professors of law, one art history professor, one doctor of art psychotherapy, and yours truly bringing it down a notch or two. Today I'm taking you to meet Charlie Uzzell Edwards, aka Pure Evil, which is what I'll be calling him from here on in. I've known Pure Evil for quite some time. I've done a few exhibitions called Face Value, Pure Evil was in Face Value 2 and 3. He collaborated with photographer Dougie Wallace on one exhibition and on the other was Fanakapan. But today, he's all ours. So in this episode, Pure Evil will be telling us how art runs in the family, how he was introduced into street art and how that now famous tear came into being 
And this is another episode that's been in the wings for absolutely ages. And we could never really fix a date that worked for the pair of us. Until a few weeks ago, that is. Well, there's a couple of events that we speak about in this podcast that are just about to come to fruition. Well, there's a relatively new gallery over in South Woodford, E18, called the Electric Gallery. I first went down there a few months ago when Heath Kane was showing, I don't know how many, possibly 25 artworks. Forgive me, Jai, if I'm wrong. But yeah, on the 12th of May, Pure Evil is showing in the same space. So that's the Electric Gallery, South Woodford, E18, May the 12th. And then just a couple of days later on the Saturday, May the 14th, the Art Car Boot Fair is back. Now I absolutely love the Art Car Boot Fair. I have since I very first went, which was, well, I don't know how many years ago. I also had the pleasure of showing in their first winter Art Car Boot Fair over in Vauxhall, which was possibly 2018. And there's a slight possibility that the Ministry of Arts could be at the next Art Car Boot Fair. We did put a proposal to Karen, but it was only a couple of weeks ago and we were far too late to get in there for this one, you know. But anyway, the Art Car Boot Fair this year is both live and online. The physical Art Car Boot Fair is at Lewis Cubic Court in King's Cross. It's been there a couple of times. And the tickets online, I think, I'm not sure, I think are £15. But you can go over to... Art Car Boot Fair's website or their Instagram profile. All the information will be there. And Pure Evil is always a prominent figure there. Well, the thing is, generally, no matter what time you get there, there's always a bloody queue over at Pure Evil's stall. So, as I mentioned, this year there is both a physical and an online Art Car Boot Fair. And there are absolutely dozens of artists, no matter what your genre or the depth of your pocket. There's something there for absolutely everyone. Well, I'd be here all day if I was going to name all of the artists that are showing at the Art Car Boot Fair. But what I will do is read you off two lists of artists. Those that have already featured on their own episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. And also those that have agreed to be on a future episode. So, the artist showing on the 14th at the Art Car Boot Fair, who also appear in our back catalogue, is... The Art Car Boot Fair themselves, Abigail Fallis, Carrie Reichart, Christian Fur, Dave Buonaguidi, Real Hackney Dave, Graphic Rewilding, Heath Kane, Jealous Gallery, Matt Collishaw, Our Types, Ben Ein, Orlando Broom, Rugman, and Wilfred Wood. And speaking of Wilfred Wood, he and I are on a day out next week to go and give a talk about our work but I'll tell you more about that after it's happened. Well, the second list of artists showing at the Art Car Boot Fair are artists that have agreed to be on the podcast, but are yet to record. That is Bob and Roberta Smith, Duncan McAfee, Flying Leaps, Jake Chapman, Kate Knight, Kira Rathbone, Kellyanne Davitt, Sarah Pope, Miss Fortune Teller, Rankin and Scooney. I mean, I'm saying ranking, that one's still in talks at the moment. I mean, to be fair, the two lists I just read you out there, if it was just those artists, it'd be a great day out, wouldn't it? But that is probably about a quarter of the artists that are showing there that day. So get online and buy yourself a ticket. There's only a certain amount, you know. And that's this Saturday, the 14th of May, 
at Lewis Cubit Square, King's Cross. But anyway, back to someone who's going to be there. So please, come and join me over Zoom as I spoke to Pure Evil. All these, I do have seven questions, Charlie, that I ask each artist. Oh. But to kick off with the first question, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work? I paint on walls. I make canvases and prints. I process ideas and try to come up with ways to communicate those ideas. So I'm constantly absorbing information and images about things that I find interesting from films, from books, from all kinds of media to try and make a commentary about what's going on in the world right now. And did you start those um, putting it on the walls? Did, was there a process that you started to sort of become an artist and then that's where it went? My dad was a painter, so I've always been drawing and, you know, sort of it just became second nature, really. Yeah. But then when I went to San Francisco, I was inspired by graffiti. And then when I came back to London, I saw all of the stencils that were all around. And what year was that that you came back from San Francisco? Uh, came back from San Francisco in around 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So I had 10 years. I finished college. I moved out there just for two weeks and it ended up being uh, <laughs> 10 years. And then Brilliant. I was bouncing back and forwards between San Francisco and Shoreditch. Nice. Uh, feeling that there was some sort of a vibe happening in Shoreditch. And what was you doing in San Francisco? I went out there to skateboard and then I got involved in the, like the rave scene. And I was also a clothing designer. So I was interested in um, like working for a streetwear company out there. Yeah. So the streetwear company was called Anarchic Adjustment. Yeah. They were originally like a BMX brand from the UK that moved out to California. So when I moved, when I went there on holiday after college, I met a bunch of people talking about UFOs and psychedelics, <laughs> and, you know, the rave scene. Yeah. And I thought this is a lot more interesting than London at the moment, yeah. where you had poll tax riots and you know, you had sort of a real crackdown on, you know, sort of raves and parties and stuff like that. So it was kind of a new world for me. So I embraced it and spent 10 years out there. And then I got interested in electronic music and, you know, kind of DJing at um, like the chill out rooms in raves and then got interested in making music. So I worked with a music label based in Frankfurt in Germany called Fax. Yeah, so nice. I was making electronic music, kind of inspired by, you know, sort of, coming out of a club first thing in the morning, you know, on a little bit of psychedelics and hearing the sound of the streets and environmental sounds. So that was my inspiration for getting into music, that everything was music. Well, that is a funny noise when you come out of a club, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I've worked in the rave scene since it started, but come out onto the street and it's almost a deafening silence. You can almost feel the, 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 the silence, can't you, you know? Yeah, it's mental. It really is. And also, I remember walking back from a club first thing in the morning and I could hear, like, you know, newspapers rustling in the streets and the sound of, you know, bird's wings flying past me. And all of that became music. So yeah. that was where I kind of went, you know, musically. I wanted to sort of loop those things and make those things into music. Yeah. So 
10 years of that, I was starting to pine a little bit for London. You know, in, in San Francisco, you sort of talk to someone and they're like, oh yeah, we should definitely meet up. That would be so cool. But deep down, they're actually a bit shallow. Whereas yeah. in London, if someone doesn't like you, you'll know about it pretty yeah. fast. And, and what know? do you prefer? I like to know where I stand, really. I agree. You know, like I remember coming back to like Bricklayer's Pub and I had like all these sort of, you know, I thought I just stepped back into London and everything was just going to take off. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'll I'll, let me show this guy who does T-shirts what I do. And they were just like, whatever, we don't care. <laughs> you know, part of our circle, yeah. they're not important. Now they're interested because I've yeah. kind of got my own thing going. Of course, of course. But when you get back, you're a nobody, which is kind of why I started doing, which seeks me seamlessly into why I started painting <laughs> on things. Yeah. Um, because I wanted, I felt like an ant in the city. I felt like an ant in London. And by going out and sort of leaving my mark on various walls, it was a way of establishing my identity. You know, I think everyone feels that a little bit about London. It can be quite a... You know, it, it, you can feel really, really small in a big city. Yeah. And what did you start spraying first? Was it just the tag? No, it was stencils. I cut out, like, a stencil of... It was weird. I had, like, a friend of mine uh, who started Box Fresh, Roger Wade, wanted me to do Banksy-type stencils for a video they were shooting. So I remembered that um, cavemen used to make stencils. They used to put their hand on a wall and they used to have a mouthful of berries and then like spit the berries onto their hands. So when they took their hand away, you'd have this reverse stencil of a hand. So I was making stencils of hands, really, really basic stuff, trying to take stencils back to the most basic. And then after that, I started doing like stencils of the Ramones, um, Subcomandante Marcos from the Zapatistas. And I think it ended up in like a sort of, you know, pretty significant stencil book that Tristan Manco did. And then I started wanting to be able to just do graffiti without having to walk around with a stencil. So I started doing the bunny. And that's when I remember someone walking past going, oh, you're the guy who does that. So it wasn't like, you know, sort of a, a cynical guerrilla marketing attempt yeah. to make myself, you know, well known. It was just, I wanted to go out and write things on the walls because I think, if you can write, you know, if you if you spray paint on a wall, it's a political act, even if you're just spray painting a picture yeah. of a kitten or something like yeah. that. You mentioned about you felt like a an ant in the city, and you know, sort of yeah. no one no one could see you. You just said about doing your your bunny tag and someone recognizing your tag and therefore putting a face to the to the tag that they'd seen. Yeah. How did that little bit of recognition feel that you had been noticed? It was a bit worrying, actually. I had that feeling again when I opened up the gallery because then people could come in. Like, I remember, um, what's the pub on um, Hoxton Street? Um, I had a good night there one night, and then the next morning the owners came into the gallery and they were like, oh, you had a good night at our pub last night? There's, like, tags all over oh, the place. Oh. And so I had to kind of, you know, go in there and, like, you know, I offered to, like, paint over whatever I'd done. But then having, you know, having a space with your name on the front of it means that people can find you pretty easily. Um, but then people w would come in and go, oh, could you send a message to 
the artist because they wouldn't imagine that I would be stupid enough to get <laughs> but you proved them there. wrong <laughs> yeah I know it was always a bit of a shock to them when I was like no it's actually me you know it's my my whole thing yeah. but when I did my first solo show I wanted it to be a solo show where it was me making the art me running the show me cleaning up you know the mess after the opening it was a sort of a one-man thing and a lot of times now you know you have a lot of artists who have you know a lot of assistants and in terms of making the art it's me I'm doing it all myself I haven't got other people in the studio kind of creating the you know the actual artwork and yeah. stencils it's all completely you know sort of hand done by the artist and where was your first solo show I rented a space um, in Truman Brewery. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. uh, the one on the corner where they always have like sample sales and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, that. I know. I know. So I had it for, I think it was five days. It was like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then I think you're out on a Monday. You've got to take it down. Yeah. And yeah, it went really well. I had like some, a group of, a couple of guys who collected um, Banksy stuff, bought about half the show. But before then, I'd been kind of penniless in London because I'd actually had a moment of, um, there's a phrase called Deus Ex Machina, Machine of God, where in Greek tragedy or Greek theatre, the God descends onto the stage and the whole play changed. And the play that changed for me was getting kicked out of America. I was going back into America via uh, Vancouver and I got stopped. And they said, oh, we think you're living in, in um, America which was slightly true, but um, they canceled my visa. So I wasn't allowed to um, be in America for 10 years, but it was kind of the best thing that could have happened to me. Cause then I had to basically, sh I showed up back in London with no money, with nothing and had to like restart completely, which was kind of a brilliant thing. You know, I'd already moved a lot of my stuff back and sold, you know, my whole music studio and all that kind of stuff. So I was kind of ready for it. But when stuff like that happens, you think of it as like the worst thing that could have possibly happened to you in your life. But then you learn from it and it actually makes you stronger. Yeah. Well, it only disrupts the path that you've already set yourself on because we all have goals, no matter whether they're tomorrow or, or in a decade's time. And yeah. then when something like that happens and interrupts it and puts a, a wall in front of it, then you have to readjust what you... The, the path that you'd already set out so yeah, yeah it can be starting afresh can't it ripping a yeah. page up and and throwing it away as it were yeah you could be walking down the street and a piano could land on you <laughs> yeah. change your whole life yeah you know, it kind of felt like that to me at the time I was like oh poor me I'll never be able to get back to you know lovely San Francisco um and you know eat burritos ever again but then what was lucky about it was I'd already kind of hooked up with pictures on walls and the people behind Banksy's whole operation so I ended up back in London, got a job working with them. And then I learned about screen prints. I learned about, you know, sort of limited editions. And then people like I'm, people like uh, Bast, people like Fail, um, you know, they were all kind of in London working, making prints, doing awesome stuff. You know, I remember going in to see Ben when he was screen printing Space Invader screen prints or when he was screen printing Banksy flags, yeah. um, you know, and it's kind of learning from him, you know, how it, how it all worked, how the whole business of, you know, street art was kind of working. I remember him giving me a bin bag of uh, Banksy prints and asking me to drop them off in the bin on the way outside. I walked wow. out with, you know, a priceless 
bin bag of uh, Banksy misprints and just go, imagine? Well, just got to do it, you know. He's asked me to do it. I'm not going to be a sneaky bastard and like save that bin bag for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> that would that was uh that, that'd be a good eBay. That would be a very expensive bin bag. An yeah. eBay drop. Yeah. Crazy. A, a question that I have here is um was there any art in the home growing up? You've already mentioned about your your, your father John. He, he you know he's, he he doesn't need much of an introduction anyway. But how was it growing up in a household where just art was everywhere? The best, I mean the craziest thing was when I was about six months, my dad won a prize to go and study art in Rome and rather than you know sort of saying well I just had a kid I can't do it we just got into a Volkswagen bus and we drove <laughs> Rome and arrived in Rome completely As you do. Yeah. yeah you know it was this, it was the 60s this is like 1968-69 and that's the kind of stuff that you did Brilliant. so the stories from you know that era and growing up with you know artists father and like a mum who was a poet it was just an amazing time. So I learned about stretching canvases. I learned about, you know, sort of getting the drinks for the opening and, you know, socialising. And so it, it became, you know, second nature to me. And also having paper and, and art materials around at all time. But it, it kind of made me think, you know what, the last thing I want to do is be an artist because it's a lot of work. <laughs> it totally yeah. consumes your life. Yeah, you, you, you won't have any. You won't be able to go on holiday. You'll always be thinking about, oh, I need to paint now. Yeah, you know, you're sitting on a beach and you're thinking about creating. It's kind of it just does completely take over um, your life. But uh, it was completely, you know, an amazing time. And now it's interesting because although my father's passed away, when I go back down to see my mum, we're working on, you know, his archive of paintings and. That's where I was going next, actually. I, I, yeah. I wondered what was happening with, with your father's work. There's pieces going into auctions right now. There are pieces that are, you know, like private collectors, you know, pop down to see my mum and, you know, she's like, oh, I sold five pieces yesterday, you know. And so it's slowly, 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 you know. I think it's, it's like the long tail, isn't it? Like certain artists are like that. And yeah. then people yeah. kind of find out about them later on and start to go, like I had a friend of mine who's got a gallery in Paris and uh, like a really cool French collector guy was like, oh, I really like, you know, Ursula Edwards. And he's like, oh, what, you mean Charlie? And he's like, oh, no, 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 his father. His father <laughs> stuff's really good. No, I mean, like, yeah. pure evil stuff's okay, but John Ursula Edwards, wow. <laughs> so, you know, and that's really, really excellent that people yeah. are sort of finding out about his work and, you know, and connecting with it. Because, um, you know, I think... When I became, you know, slightly well-known, he was very, very proud dad, and he'd tell everyone, you know, proudly about the work that I was doing. Well, that's, that's a question I was about to ask, because his artwork, yeah. um, I mean, there was a, a, a range of styles or, or an evolution of his work. Yeah. It, it sort of, it, it went from being sort of surreal to semi-surreal townscapes or, or even village scapes, if that's, a, if that's yeah. an actual thing. There's one and, here um, in, 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 the, in the picture. That's one of his, which is nice. the um, that's a, a scene of kids who were basically coal mining kids in the valleys of Wales, and they had their first day off in you know months because there was a miners' strike. So they all went down to the river for a swim, Brilliant. and someone took you know one of those massive box cameras yeah. down there and took a photograph of it. So a lot of it was 
documenting, you know, his identity, you know, and his Welshness, which is funny because I always felt like I didn't really love growing up in Wales because I was the new romantic in the village. I was the sort of <laughs> yeah. the Simon Le Bon, you know, looking like. Yeah. Well, you call yourself the new romantic of the village, no doubt. Yeah, the only new romantic in the, the village. Weirdo. It's a tough one when all the rest of the kids are into Iron Maiden. Yeah. You know, really, really, you know, you're always waiting to get beaten up at a bus yeah. stop. But then it, it makes you stronger, I think. Everyone you know? ended up with your eyeliner on their knuckles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny, man. It really was like that. Yeah. Then it meant that, you know, we've kind of jumped from my dad to like me, 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 which is like, well, I generally just love talking about my, my own shit. Let's get back to my dad. So he um, didn't live, you know, grow up in the era of social media and Instagram and all of that. So we're so plugged into technology. I remember showing him, you know, the computer for the first time. And I was like, okay, move the mouse. He's like, the mouse, where's the mouse? He was <laughs> like, course, had his hand on the mouse, but he didn't know what the mouse was. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that generation didn't grow up with social media and, you know, sort of the internet, but we did. We were lucky that, you know, like, especially for street art, it was kind of at a time when the internet was growing. So we could use that as a tool to let people know about, you know, every single print I do, it's on Instagram. Every single, you know, painting I make, it's on social media. So people can, you know, find out. Well, that's where I was going with the question, because although your dad's styles were, were very different, he's, materials were very traditional yeah. and then you come along in the same world as him yeah. but with a spray can and a stencil and yeah. that's what I was going to ask and, and you've already sort of answered it saying that he was very proud of you but that's what I was going to ask how he sort of introduced himself into this new world of art which sort of sprung in the in the sort of mid-90s you know in in the UK but it probably yeah. didn't affect didn't get to him until just before you showed him your work, I could imagine. Yeah, but then also he had like books about Basquiat. Oh, you know, okay. he was a massive fan of pop art, you know, so he was definitely, you know, he was probably the person who got me into Basquiat, you know, because he saw that there was a sort of a line that was going from sort of, you know, German expressionism to um, Picasso to you know to sort of along the way to Basquiat via pop art probably yeah. and so he understood a lot of that and in in a lot of ways he was quite you know the use of some of his material were quite you know sort of um groundbreaking he used a lot of gaffer tape he used a lot of um there was like an old radox bottle that he loved because he could paint it and he could use that as a sort of stencil nice yeah yeah, and yeah. when you look at radox and it's reversed it kind of looks like greek lettering <laughs> I remember being at an exhibition and someone was like, hmm, I wonder, is that is that Greek? I was like, no, that's actually a bottle of Radox. Yeah, you know, burst in that, the bubble. Yeah. Bottle, yeah, yeah. So, you know, he was definitely pushing it, pushing the boundaries with material. And, and so, you know, for me, it was about like when you jump with the spray can. It just seemed to be something that you could paint with it, but you can carry it and, you know, you can have a lot of fun with it. And also it's really hard to master so it's never ever going to come out exactly how you want it. Yeah. So the skill is being able to sort of tame it a little bit. You know? well, bit mind like you, the way that. you're talking of the spray can there is just yeah. like artists in the sort of early 1900s were talking about the paint tube, isn't it? You know? Yeah, exactly. And I think also technology has always run alongside art. 
like say for example when frescoes were invented when people were like "Ooh, you know what i'm going to mix up an egg with this pigment and i'm going to yeah. make tempera or in the 60s when screen printing was invented you know and then andy warhol was like well i could use this it's a commercial process but i can use it to make art and then you know right now you've got people who are getting into nfts they're using that technology you know so technology has always been the sort of the, the thing that's moving art forwards, you know, before pressurized cans and spray cans, you know, we, we didn't have access to that. So we would be, you know, daubing on walls with, with paintbrushes. And chewing up berries. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned NFTs there. Have you dipped your toe in that world? Yeah, I have. I just, I was just messaging a friend of mine, uh, Ben Frost in Australia, and he hates them. So it's kind of <laughs> like people are all, a little bit on the fence about it, but I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying you know, being able to sort of use video work that I've done in the past. And I've been getting into, I bought like a whole virtual reality set where I can actually build 3D stuff. Nice. And I'm like standing in the middle of the living room, waving my hands around like a mad person, <laughs> you know, like three-dimensional skulls yeah. and stuff like that that you can walk through. But then you can buy as an NFT. And then I guess you can sort of move it into your, you know, sort of realistic, uh, metaverse mansion you know in uh, decentraland or whatever i think it's fun it's it's really nice to play around with technology and also the fact that some people hate it and some people love it well that's cool that's like graffiti you know yeah well i'm i'm on the fence with it because i don't fully understand it so that's only my own yeah you know it's my own fault for not delving into the information it took me a while it took me a while because i had some people who were like oh we want to help you to do it and i thought no i don't want to be tied to anyone else when I'm doing it. I want to learn how to get my money, turn it into crypto, buy NFTs, but also you have to pay to actually mint your NFTs. So you have to have a certain amount of money in there. Yeah. But every single kind of um, you know day, I'm so surprised. Like um, Takashi Murakami released uh, a whole bunch of stuff recently. And it was the kind of thing where I was, I woke up in the middle of the night, I put my, turned my phone on and I was like, oh, this is quite cool. And it's not that expensive. Should I buy something? And then I just fell asleep. And then the next morning it had just completely blown up. But then it's really, the, you know, when you talk about art and artists, the first thing that any newspaper mentions is how much that artist is worth and how much yeah. it's sold for. <clears throat> and a lot of NFT is based on how much it's sold for. And a lot of NFT stuff is not very good. You know, there's some great stuff, but there's a lot of rubbish, you know. And I guess that's something that need the balance needs to change a little bit, I think, because now it's not about that was a really good piece, very artistic, and I like the way you delivered it. It's more like, oh my God, that sold for like, you know, 18,000. And then someone, you know, turned it around and sold it for even more. Sorry, I went in a gallery last week, or week yeah. before, and it was just traditional gallery inside contemporary work. Yeah. Go down into the basement, and they've got screens down there, and, and it's a, a physical exhibition of their yeah. NFTs. It's that unit gallery, because they've, got a, it was, they've yeah. got a good presence. I was looking at sort of, I bought four monitors for the gallery where I could show NFTs. So I've got a wall of it as well. And I thought, oh, this might be like one of the first ones in London. And I saw that unit had like a whole mega room yeah. downstairs. Yeah, it was, it was like, oh. about 15, a dozen. Yeah. Um, but it felt strange that 
these things that I'm I don't understand are now yeah. in front of me. And I was having that little conflict. Should they be on the wall or should they be on? I know they was on the screen, so that's a bit of a contradiction. But it felt like they was coming into my world, even though I hadn't sort of wanted them to, you know? Yeah, for sure. But then I guess that's what people thought about Impressionism. Of course. I, 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 when I was contemplating how it made me feel on the way home, I was yeah. thinking all of that, you know? It, yeah. it's, it's just me being a bit of a fucking Luddite. Yeah. And you know, like resisting what is inevitable, really, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I like the kind of, that that side of it, there's the conflict that's going on with it, that not everyone's like into it, not everyone really understands why you would pay that money for a JPEG, you know? Um, but then I think probably before, you know, sort of the canvas was invented, people who were used to paintings on walls, you know, sort of frescoes, we're looking at canvases like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. You know, or art on scrolls. Yeah. Before that, people were like, I really like cave paintings. They were kind of, you know, they were there. Now there's these things on scrolls and you can yeah. like move them around. That is weird. So it's just a matter of, you know, sort of, it's a matter of time, isn't it? We'll just be so used to them. You'd probably be able to like make them on your bloody Facebook, you know, in about half a year and they'll just be everywhere. It's funny though, because I spoke to like, a gallery about but if I had some work could I you know would you would they want to do nfts and they were like oh what's that but then in six months time now they're like fully on board with it and they're you know sort of my worry is that it will become such a, a such a hype thing that people will then not even think about physical art anymore but I don't think that at all I think people will really start to um that they're gonna they're gonna realize that actually if you've got a physical canvas that someone has made with a brush pushing ink around or paint around on a canvas, that's an amazing thing, you know. And so there's you can't beat that, I don't think. Well, I mean, there's been sort of movements, if you like, you know, in the 90s when conceptual art become introduced to the masses, yeah, it was then well, painting is dead, and it, it never was. Then, you know, uh, it, in the late 90s, when graffiti come into the masses, again, it was, is the, is the paintbrush dead? And it, it never was. And it, it you know, it's, it's lasted for several hundred years. It's not going anywhere. It's yeah. just people are, you know, we're inventing new ways of, of showing art. So yeah. it'll never die, you know, it's just less people might be doing it, you know. Yeah. You know, the people who are the crypto bros who are like, yeah, NFTs are going to kill the art world. It's only going to be digital from now on. That's bull. But remember, when people were doing like video art in like the 80s and stuff like that, people were like, you know, sort of laughing about how boring it was, like time-based media, you know, sort of, you know, installations at galleries and stuff like that. But really, those are just, you know, that's just digital art, isn't it? Yeah. Well, going back into street art and physical work from the digital world, yeah. one of the questions I do have here is, which piece that you've created has got the strongest emotional connection? I think the Jackie Kennedy. Jackie Kennedy, because it was, you know, I'd received an email from a copy village in China saying we can make copies of any Andy Warhol print or painting that you want. And I thought that was kind of something that Warhol would have kind of loved in a way, you know, the fact that there was this copy village in China that was reproducing Jackie Kennedy's and Jackie Kennedy's and Jackie Kennedy's, you know, for a global market of people who didn't want to spend 
millions on an Andy Warhol thing. So I took the Jackie, I'd made it into this sort of crying Jackie and it just became really iconic. It kind of, you took it from somewhere, but then you took it somewhere else. And that was also inspired by, you know, Norwegian death metal, the kind of black makeup they like to wear on their eyes and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was kind of taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there and just bringing it all together into something completely different. That was kind of, yeah, that, that's an image that I was pretty happy with. And was that the first teardrop? No, the first teardrop um, proper Nightmare series one was Liz Taylor. And she, then she went and died. So it was kind of, the timing was mental because then yeah. there was this nostalgia for Liz Taylor and everybody wanted to have, you know, like a sad crying Liz Taylor because they all felt a bit sad about Liz Taylor. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's funny when things like that happen, isn't it? And yeah. sometimes it's spooky. I had a print that was going to come out of David Bowie and I didn't release it on the Friday. I had a feeling... And then on the week, on the Monday, someone was like, oh, that was weird about you and uh, that uh, David Bowie print. I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, he died this morning. <laughs> so it was just well, like bizarre, bizarre, bizarre yeah. timing. You know, I guess with an... Either like, that or you're an assassin. Yeah, and maybe. I mean, like someone else said to me, please don't do a portrait of me. You know, I don't want to die. Yeah. I always feel like that might be just like the kiss of death for some people, you know. <laughs> Yeah, there's, I've, got, I've got a friend in Ireland and um, she comes over. She's been over in Ireland for 22 years. She comes over maybe once a year, once every 18 months. But for a, for a time, a few years ago, she'd come over to visit one of her friends, stay with them. Then, a, you know, a short while later, they'd die. Yeah. And that happened about three times. And in the end, she'd be saying, oh, I'm coming over and I want to stay at yours. And people were going like, no, it fucking ain't. I don't <laughs> stay away. You know, you're, you're a buck. Or, yeah, you're a yeah, exactly. Or you call it, oh, you know. my God. Yeah, funny. Yeah, man. <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. <laughs> Charlie, what do you do to relax? I chill out with the film. Nice. You know, if I've got like a great film that I've got lined up, I will just get my massive beanbag out and just, you know, get a couple of tonics lined up and just sit there and watch a movie. Nice. Um, also, being out in the countryside, which is where I live now, we'll just basically go out for a walk in the woods. And me and my little, little dude have got a game called Sleepy Trees, where if you've got little sort of small trees, 
that have blown over in the wind, little kind of saplings and like longer, yeah. you know, will we'll, we'll basically, they usually fall and fall against other little small trees, but we'll pull them out so they like fall to the ground and they can be sleepy trees. Oh, nice. Go after a good storm. And he, he just loves to go up to trees and say hello. And why not? You oh, know? beautiful. Why wouldn't you go up and say hello to a tree and give it a nice stroke? They're amazing things. And so we just go through the woods saying hello. That's, that's probably one of the best things. And the last walk we did, the sun was just going down slowly, slowly, slowly on the other side of the valley. And as the sun was going down, the light was amazing. And we were just hanging out in nature. It was incredible. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that we all lose, isn't it? You know, we, we forget how much bloody fun our childhood was and, and how little we have to adjust our life just every now and then to introduce some of that in, you know. Yeah, I think we've kind of learned, maybe got some of that back from the pandemic. We've I think so. Spending more time, you know, sort of with family and just, you know, enjoying the simple things and not running around. Kind of like a rat in a wheel or a dog that's always chasing cars. I remember a car, a, a car chasing dog that I saw, it would run that way when the car went past. It would run that way when the car went past. And it was perpetually in this cycle of just running after things. But if the cars actually stopped, the dog wouldn't have known what to do with it. No. And I think in our lives, we're a bit like that. We're just chasing after cars without knowing why we're doing that. Yeah. You know, like we're all trying to, you know, sort of be more, you know, sort of famous and more successful and, you know, have more money. And we should focus a bit more on just what we've got and enjoy it. Uh, last night, I was just like, I got, we got back, we went to, um, Rankin did a really nice opening, which was what we talked about, you know, people doing charity stuff on different stuff. It was all on toilet seats. I saw that. It was really that. good fun. Got home, lay down, absolutely knackered, and just started like looking through, you know, my Facebook and going through. I said to myself, I bet you can't just stop right now. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think you can't, you're never going to get to the end of it. You're never going to get to the bottom <laughs> where it says, you have now won Facebook, <laughs> you know. The end. The end. The end of Facebook. Like, oh, my God. Now, we're all going to have these, people are going to look at our sort of skeletons, you know, like in Time Team 3020, they're going to be looking at our, our bones going, why are the thumbs so weird? <laughs> yeah, you know, well, they, they're so, so big and muscly, yeah. Absolutely muscly, right-hand thumbs. What's that about? Yeah, everyone's got a big arse and a big thumb. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It really has. I mean, he, our little dude, he grabbed hold of one of my phones, um, and I think Lisa showed him how to do a selfie. He's not even two, and now he's like big, big, it's fucking big, big, isn't it? big. It's absolutely bonkers. But you know what? It, it keeps him chilled for about five minutes. Well, the, the thing is... For them, it's exactly the same as showing them a like we would have had at that age, a, a you know a plastic cross trying to put it in a, a square hole. That box of game that we possibly all had, it's just yeah. like showing them that, and then all of a sudden they they realise that the circle goes in the circle, the square goes in the square. Yeah. With your one, it's just press the button on the side, something lights up. You press this button, and there's a picture of you. Yeah, it's fantastic. In in some ways, in some ways, it's completely scary. Because their brains are going to be different to our brains. Yeah. You know, we were more concerned with like going to look for porn mags in the woods 
You know, they'll never get yeah, the joy of doing find that. them as well, wouldn't you? They'll never get the joy of looking for a porn mag in the woods like we well, used to. No, no, we, I think yeah. the joy is actually finding one. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember the first one I found in a in an evergreen edge. Oh my god! Where, where I think I've still got it somewhere. <laughs> Who put those porn mags in the woods? Crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, here's a question, Charlie. If there was you and five other artists, past and present. What would your ideal group show be? Uh, um, Picasso, Basquiat. Maybe get like Michelangelo and Leonardo to do some collabs because they never really collabed very much, did they? No, uh, no. Because that would be quite a draw. Because, you know, with, what, what? With, like, what I like about graffiti is you have like four or five artists going, right, we're going to paint this wall. We're going to do that. We're going to do this. So imagine if Michelangelo was like, this, this Sistine Chapel is really like pain in the ass. And I give my friend Leonardo a call, see if he can come up and we can like mix Spencil up it. stuff and you know get a bit crazy. Yeah, do do like a face value and um, get Leonardo yeah. to pass along some of his artworks onto the others. I think that would be really cool. More collabs, you know, like go back in time. And um, I think that's about four. Uh, yeah, then, then I'd probably like put a few pieces in. I think that'd be a quite a good show. Cool. I had a few questions given to me to ask you mm-hmm. um one was how did the eye drips come about which you'd already answered yeah where did the moniker pure evil come from i was drawing in my sketchbook i drew a little drawing of a rabbit that i'd killed when i was younger and then i wrote pure evil next to it and it just kind of it became i had all these other characters in this sort of fictional crew called the So Fuzzy Crew. And as soon as Pure Evil Bunny arrived, he just, he was the alpha and he just, the other ones just didn't stand a chance. They were gone. And the other one was, where did the bunny tag come from? But you've obviously just answered that as bunny well. Bunny tag was, um, there was a exhibition called Pictoplasma. It was about character design. And I was looking through this book, looking at all these sort of like Japanese style illustrations. And also, I think in the 1985, maybe it was Barcelona Olympics, there was a little character called Kobe, K-O-B-I. And it was just beautifully drawn and it was really simple. And I wanted something that was iconic like that, like the sort of, um, you know, the dog, that Keith Haring yeah, used yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah. I think Frank Kozik did like the smirking rabbit, which was like a rabbit with a cigarette. And a lot of the times with me, I'll see something and then I'll forget it in a way, but I'll kind of remember it as my own original idea. I think we all do that. We'll see something and kind of go, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And then we'll, our brain will go, okay, cool. I'm going to store that somewhere away. And then later on, I'm going to bring it out as like some sort of, moment of inspiration <laughs> and I think that is kind of how evolution yeah. has always worked you know it's always been like okay I'm going to take what I've got but I'm going to take something from somewhere else and just adjust it and see how that works and if it doesn't work then I'll go in a different direction and kind of see how that works so we're yeah. all kind of plundering from somewhere to get somewhere else. Uh, another question I had is did did your father go to your gallery and would you ever show any of his work there? Yeah, we did an exhibition of his work in the gallery. Which oh, was sorry, I wasn't aware. 
yeah, it was one of the first exhibitions we did. Good. I was, um, I that so. was super fun. And I think he loved it. And he loved, you know, sort of being up in London in like sort of East End vibes, you know, having an exhibition at, you know, at my gallery. So it was kind of the whole circle, you know, was kind of, it become, it was a really beautiful thing. Because when I was younger, I tried to schlep his work around to various galleries. Naively, I thought, get a, a little, you know, sort of portfolio of work together. I'd go knocking on, you know, like pick 10 galleries in London that, you know, I thought would work and just go knock on their door and say, hey, you know, I've got my, some paintings um, by my father. I think he's really good. Will you have a look? And one of them wouldn't even answer the door to let me in. I, I rang the buzzer and I had to talk to them because they wouldn't let me in. And they said, oh, well, wait till he's dead. And then maybe, you know, we might be able to like, you know, sell his work then. I just thought that was the most disgusting thing I've yeah. ever done, which yeah. is kind of why I wanted to open up my own gallery so I wouldn't have to deal with arseholes like that. Was you not tempted after he'd passed to go and knock on the door, go, right, now buy it? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, didn't want to, I didn't want to let them have the chance. Yeah, one of you yeah. arseholes, yeah. Yeah, and because I think a lot of it is, a lot of galleries, they haven't really got a lot of imagination. They won't really go for like an artist just based on, we have a hunch and we really like it. It's more about money and, you know, what kind of clique that artist is in and if they're friends of friends. And it's, you know, there's a lot of nepotism in the art world, especially like modern art, contemporary art world vibes. Yeah. You go to like freeze and you just think, you guys are all like the weird arty kids that, you know, you've created your own little kind of niche and you don't want the sort of barbarians, you know, storming, the citadels of the art world. They want to keep us all out. Yes, yeah. you know, we're, we're you do like feel that. that when it gets up to that to that level, it does feel like you're not welcome. Yeah, yeah. Or it's trends. Yeah. Like right now, you know, sort of, you're getting emails from like galleries going, oh, you know, artists from Guyana are really hot right now. All these galleries who've decided that, you know, African art is the new thing. But they're not doing it because they've decided that it is really great. They're just doing it because the, they think that this is what they should be showing. Yeah. You know, and, and it'll be something else next, you know, next month. Yeah, because I, I, I never knew, and I, I still don't, whether it's actually a chip on my shoulder. Because of my background, the way I speak, I've always felt like people would be talking behind my back. That sort of, um, you know, like pointing when I'm not looking sort of thing, because it's the um, the loud cockney in the corner who's always swearing yeah. and joking, you know. I've realised over the over the years of being around and doing it so often, that one, that I've, ne I've never seen that or heard that, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, from, from anyone else. Um, so I realised that it is just a, a chip and a bit of paranoia. Yeah, um, it, could, it could be completely, you know, so founded though. You know, I mean, something like the Art Club Boot Fair, though, I think they're very democratic and they have a really good mix of, you know, people that they work with and they yeah. show and they genuinely love art. And also, the, you know, the buyers are there because they love art and they want to put the art on the walls and they're enjoying it. But then the whole sort of, you know, sort of art world, this sort of elite art world, I mean, that is the reason why we have to just do it ourselves, you know, because, yeah. you know, they're not, we're, they're not going to come knocking on our doors and we're not going to go there cap in hand saying, please, Mr. Art World, you know, can I have a little, you know, can I have a little bit more, please? Well, it's when, I, when, I, when I enter that bit of the art world, 
that I do feel that the art and the artist is secondary to the price that's in the in the bottom right hand corner, you know. Yeah, if I, you know, if artists start selling for millions and millions, you know they're going to start come knocking because they basically they're, they're they're a business and they just want to make money out of yeah. artists. What's kind of nice about the the NFT thing, if you are an artist, you can put your own art up there, you know, and you can sort of bypass the gallery. You know, I've passed, I bypassed the gallery system by creating my own gallery. And if you do sell, say, you know, a piece of your artwork on an NFT, you get paid immediately. You don't have to wait six months for them to finally let you know that they've sold something. Yeah. Or you see a picture of your art in someone's house and you're like, wait a minute, what's it doing in that person's house? You know, it's supposed to be still with that gallery. Oh, yeah. they sold it and didn't tell me. Well, like it when I remember seeing you on that four rooms with yeah. um oh, I can't remember his name who's got the um and, galleries yeah and he said you know I'll take your work and I'll sell it and blah 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 the f- and he mentioned about the fifty percent and you yeah. went well I've got my own gallery I don't need your fifty percent <laughs> and I thought that was just such a good line to a to a gallery yeah. owner as well you know just making them realise you know that they're not that important to absolutely every artist you know it's, yeah it's it's a weird one being an artist and having your own gallery it really messes things up for other galleries you know but then I, I do sell to other galleries and work with other galleries and do exhibitions because then there's a sort of I respect other bricks and mortar businesses because I've got my own and you know they've got their you know their rent to pay and they've got their staff to pay and it's somewhere nice that people can come and look at my art so you know I'm not going to sort of block them out of the whole system I'm going to work with them. And do you think looking at that side of things that the the last two years of lockdown, where artists have, have not been able to use the galleries and sh- and try and sell their own work more, do you think that is going to disrupt the bricks and mortar sale of artwork? Yeah, it's definitely possible for artists to you know be completely independent and work you know sort of putting their work up on Instagram and social media and promoting what they're doing, selling stuff on their website, and that's been a godsend for a lot of artists. You know, I had like a, someone sent me a picture of someone on Sky TV doing a Zoom call and in the background, they had one of my pictures. And that was probably because of, you know, lockdown, people have got, they're all doing Zoom calls now and they all need a nice piece of art in the background to show, you know, how cultured and cool they are. Yeah. So it's, you know, and also people now, they don't mind going online and buying a neon piece for 4,000, you know, and getting it shipped from London to Hong Kong because they trust what they're seeing and they, they you know they think you know what they're seeing is pretty much what they're going to get also when they actually get the physical piece the physical piece is going to be a lot cooler than the digital image so usually people are like wow i was blown away by it you know people are now you know like before if you were going into the tate and there was a qr code that you were supposed to like hold your phone up to to get your ticket you wouldn't know what the hell to do but because restaurants have had to use QR codes. And we're all so much more used to doing, you know, that kind of stuff. It's second nature now. So you can use those some little things. Yeah, I remember when I first used them, I got asked what the little crossword was down on the, yeah. down on the corner there. Yeah, exactly. We went to the Tate yesterday and you couldn't actually just walk straight in. You had to do the QR thing and then it would send you a digital ticket and then you could go in, which is fine. but. You know, before I think there was that resistance to it, but we've had to overcome 
our resistances to, you know, sort of buying stuff online, using QR codes, you know, buying, you know, digital art rather than physical art that you get instantly, um, you know, that you can stick up on your monitor in your house. Yeah. You mentioned about going around with a portfolio of your dads to the London galleries. How are you when and if an, an artist comes in with their portfolio into the Pure Evil Gallery? Oh, tell them fuck off. <laughs> well, come back when you're dead. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. If I, well, I'm hardly in the gallery at all at the moment because I'd rather stay, you know, stay in my studio and make art. But if they're actually like approaching, you know, an, an email introduction is, is great, first of all, because then I can kind of have a look at their work and kind of take it from there. Mm. Um, but I mean, to be honest, I think the last artists that I found were in Mexico when I was um, traveling through there. We found some printmakers in Oaxaca and, you know, loved the work and, you know, got their artwork over to the gallery and did like a little mini show. But I'm, I'm constantly getting, you know, emails with artwork. I think a lot of times people don't really know what the gallery is all about. They don't yeah. really know, you know, that we're, we're pretty much like street art and graffiti kind of vibes. So that's that's a difficult one. But then you have to kind of take that energy and deflect it in a positive way and say, it's not right for our program, but why don't you look at some of the artists that you like the work of, that you feel like your work has an affinity to, see where they're showing and, you know, how they've kind of reached the level and kind of go down that path, which is a lot more positive than saying, fuck off, come back when you're dead. Yeah, of course. You know, course. it's like kind of moving that energy and helping them because they could send out a thousand emails and get no replies when there's probably two or three galleries that would probably love to work with yeah. them. Just well, finding the right, you know, it's, it's the right peg for the right hole, isn't of it? Of course. On this podcast, I speak to sort of like artists who are just, who have just become an artist or yeah. some are just about to decide or have just decided they want to and and right up to people who have been doing it, you know, all of their life and they're in their sort of mid to late 70s, you know, and yeah. they're a world-known world name. And the, But the ones who are just starting, they're saying, well, I find it so difficult going like to a gallery, walking in with a portfolio because everyone's turning us away. And, and I, I really don't understand that culture, you know. I know that, you know, you could, if, if you was in your gallery and that culture wasn't there, you could possibly have a queue of students or, you know, wannabes lining up outside with yeah. a portfolio. But likewise, you know, every now and then someone could come in who just is that little gem that, that yeah. you've been waiting for, you know. Yeah, a fully formed, amazing creative artists could just walk in and because of your attitude you could just completely miss that yeah you know and there have been examples all through history of people who've like just missed out on you know sort of signing up amazing artists amazing musicians you know amazing painters because they didn't have the, the sort of that that five minutes just to give them a moment where you can go okay cool it's quite intimidating though when you're actually looking through a portfolio and they're standing right next to you because I understand that like the artist's ego is very, very fragile. It's almost like holding like a little nest with a little tiny egg inside. Yeah. You're, you've got to sort of be very, very careful with that because you're holding their heart, you know, and uh, even when you've had an exhibition, 
that feeling that you get after it where you're like a little bit disappointed is that feeling where you know god didn't pick you up and go you're the best aren't you? <laughs> it's, it's never ever going to happen so it's always going to be an anti-climax but also you know that thing of like stepping into a gallery and showing you their their your work the thing that is your heart and soul is you know it's really 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 hardcore but you've got to put yourself out there and you've got to take the knocks. And if someone says, look, it's not right for us, you've got to kind of understand that and go, I understand that. Thank you for the reply, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll keep looking because somewhere out there, there is the right place for you. Well, I've come from my previous life was putting my head below the parapet, trying not to be noticed. Yeah. And then all of a sudden after, well, once I've come into my new life, is I've got to stand above the parapet and wave my arms about to try and get noticed, you know? Yeah. And, and I do have difficulties with that, but I have no qualms when I do go into a gallery and I'm always chatty, even if I don't know the people. Yeah. And I've got no qualms then, if I think the time is right to go, this is my work. You know, would you show it in here, for instance, you know? Yeah. I've never had a fuck off and come back when you're dead, you know? That. Yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've had a few bits of interest and sold a few bits and had a few bits on the wall from it. So yeah. it does work, but that's possibly because I'm the sort of character I am with a, a, a USP that's quite different, if you like, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about someone like, um, you know, Monk, he was probably not the kind of guy who could just walk into a gallery and charm them. You know, his whole artwork is about, you know, sort of fear and, you know, sort of um, isolation. So some people, like, it, they would find it very, very hard to be, you know, sort of able to sort of push their work, you know. And so there's probably a lot of people out there who are just creating the most amazing work, but they just don't have the tools, you know, to actually get it out to the world. Yeah. You know, they're just painting because they have to, because the voice in their head is saying, you've got to create. You know, they're yeah. not thinking about, I'm going to make this and then I'm going to have a retrospective at the Tate. They're just painting because, you know, it kind of stills the voices inside their head. Yeah, and it's, as, you, as you said at the start of this, it's, it's all enveloping. It is just another piece of your personality, isn't it, you know? For a lot of people, it isn't just a job. It is just constantly there in your life whether you like it or not it's like i don't know having a stutter or a stammer you know it's it's part yeah. of you and yeah, then you exactly. can't help I mean, it for my dad he would paint but then he wouldn't spend the next three hours trying to promote it on social media no then he would just go back and paint and then he would just go back and paint and then he would just go back and paint it was just all about pure painting but now if you're an artist you've got to have your instagram account you've got to have your you know the ways of getting it out to the world it's very confusing, but it's your life, you know, it really is, you know, you've got to have, like, I was lucky because I had parents who understood what I was doing and encouraged me, you know, and so you've got to have that encouragement from your family. Yeah. You know, hopefully, you, you know, you get that because it, it means so much. And say, for example, if, you know, my little boy decides he wants to be, I don't know, a, a road digger or an accountant or he wants to be, you know, whatever, I'm going to support him and not try and push him in the direction that I would like him to go in. Yeah. No. no just be like, totally like, wow, that, that, that road looks so clean now that you've like brushed the whole of it. it fantastic yeah. job. Do you want well, to have a cup of tea? When we first spoke about doing a podcast and you were saying like, you know, things that we could talk about, 
at the at the bottom of that, you said um, that you'd also like to talk about when things fall apart, it can be an opportunity to do something great. Yeah. What do you want about California? Yeah, opportunities where things haven't gone quite so well, but then you've had to sort of learn to sort of adjust. I think there was a great quote from uh, uh, Josh Hom from Eagles of Death Metal, and he says, he was talking about when uh, the death of David Bowie and how Iggy Pop dealt with it. And he said, one thing's for certain, terrible things are gonna happen, but when they do, what do you do? And I thought that was a brilliant quote. Yeah, It's just, you know, when those things do happen, you're gonna have to deal with them anyway. But if you can deal with them in a way that ends up positive, then you've learned a lesson from that. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's one of the essential things about life. Another great quote I got from uh, uh, the guy who did Maharishi was, if you're climbing a mountain, it's not about getting to the top of the mountain, it's how you climb that mountain. And that's a great lesson for life, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's not about getting to the top, it's about the steps that you take in a sort of Taoist way, you know, making sure that each step is the right way. And you may take, you know, you may take the wrong turn, but then maybe those detours actually, you know, they end up, you know, it's, it ends up a blessing because you've yeah. gone somewhere that you didn't think you were going to go down, but it ended up being quite an amazing place. Because my wife and I, we, we had like, you know, bereavement where we lost our little girl. And I really got into a meditation and it really helped me to deal with, you know, sort of all the sort of grief of that and like, you know, sort of kept me away from, you know, kind of the black dog and depression um, and being able to kind of still your mind and learning about Taoism and Buddhism was really, really, really helpful to me. So a lot of my kind of life lessons have come from that. When something like that happens, you're asking a question that can never be answered. Yeah. So you're either going to come up with your own answer, which is always going to be wrong, yeah. or you, you reach that plateau when you sort of half understand that death is life and life is death sort of thing, you know, and, yeah, and, and realise what's, what's happening. Likewise, it, it wasn't a bereavement, but I could imagine the feeling being quite similar. We was in the second day of one of the lockdowns, and we got a phone call to confirm that my son was diagnosed with a rare cancer. Oh, wow. Um, and obviously, we was leading up to it. We thought it could be because it was in the family. This, this rare one just got diagnosed. It was like the, the cancer itself is only like 15 years old. And yeah. this, this cancer is rare in adults, and it's supposed to be nigh on non-existent in children. And my mm. son and my, my nephew got it first. And my son's symptoms followed his because it's genetic. Oh wow! Um, all of a sudden, I'm in this moment where I've got my child, who was I think he was fifth, I think sixteen he was. He's sitting behind me in the car when I got the phone call. It's that weird thing because he's he's there with us. You're looking at the, your you know mortality of of yourself and your child, yeah. and it, it makes you makes you look at the world in a completely different way. Nigh on selfish because fuck who else matters around my car that we was in at the time you know but the world just keeps turning and the yeah. world's not aware and you know the birds and the trees are just like i'm just gonna sit in the tree and sing yeah you know, it makes no difference to me which was kind of 
that hurts in a way, but it's kind of reassuring that life will still go and the planet will still turn and, you know, it's, yeah, it's crazy. It, although he didn't pass and he's fine, he's fine now. Yeah. It was that moment, it, it was, and obviously I've had bereavement in my life and it felt just like it, like a, like a living bereavement. It was really quite a strange, quite a strange thing. Because you were thinking about what would be the worst possible scenario. Of course. Happened, which is basically losing your son. And, and no one wants to, you know, bury their child. It was the worst, worst yeah. thing ever, you know. And, and that's the thing, it leaves a scar. It doesn't even leave a scar, it leaves an open wound, doesn't it, you know? Yeah, it never goes away, you know. It really never does. You're always going to be grieving, you know, but you're just going to have to live with it. Wait, my art, my art is my therapy. Because let, let's face it, I'm painting these crying people. Yeah. And I'm talking about this sort of, this sadness that everyone has in their lives. You scratch the surface of people's lives and there's usually a sadness you know, you look at everyone and you think everyone's life is ha-ha, he-he, yeah. and it's not. We put this, you know, sort of one face up on Facebook that's, you know, us having a fantastic time and, like, look at me on the beach. And then yeah. we don't really post up, oh, my wife's had two miscarriages in the last two years and we're doing this and we're doing that. It's not, you know, so you kind of, you keep that inside. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. The, the meditation thing for me has been... I don't, you know, get on a, on a rock and sit there in my sack. <laughs> I just, even if I'm just sitting on a train or something, I'll just give myself five minutes just to slow things down yeah. and kind of stop the traffic in my head. You're never going to be able to sit there and not think about things. As soon as you're meditating, you're going to go, oh yeah, that YouTube clip is really cool. <laughs> yeah. But you're just going to let that pass and just slow things down. And I, I, I don't go to like, you know, a Buddhist temple and do it. I'll just kind of, take a few minutes and just go and breathe and that that really really helped you know just to sort of still my mind a little bit charlie if you wasn't an artist what would you like to be porn star <laughs> perfect. perfect next question <laughs> cup <laughs> and anything coming up yeah um, got, um three exhibitions in the uk Unit 44 Gallery, Electric Gallery, and Oink Gallery. And then in Italy, in, I think, September, hopefully, uh, there's a gallery called Wunderkammer. I've worked with them before. And sometimes I'll work with galleries and then I never hear from them again. And I think, oh, what did I do? What did I say? But they've actually, I've worked with them before. Um, it takes us back to when I was a little tiny baby and I actually went to live in Rome. So this was a show that I actually went back to Rome and um, did an exhibition. And I'm doing a show with them either in Rome or in Milan. Yeah, so that's, nice. that's going to be nice. I'm really enjoying The Electric Gallery, have you been down there? Uh, no, I haven't. I've sent stuff to them. Yeah, it's a newish gallery, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah. it's sort of down, say, down the road. It's, it's about sort of like a quarter of an hour away from me. Cool. And I popped down there a little while ago when Heath Kane was showing... Okay, yeah. yeah, it's a cool, cool little gallery, isn't it? Yeah, they just called me up and said, do you want to do a quick show? And I was like, yeah. I did a show in um, one space recently where I didn't want to spend loads of money because I think right now we've got to be quite frugal with, you know, the endeavours that we do in terms of doing exhibitions and stuff like that. So I took all of the artwork, rolled up in a massive mega tube 
um, and then arrived and stuck all of the artwork up with like 3M mounting putties, like blue yeah, tack, yeah. basically, and just hand finished everything throughout the show. And it was a winning formula because then people could kind of see me doing it so they know that I'm the artist and it worked really well. So that's a format that I'm going to be kind of repeating at different shows. I'll be there hand finishing the artwork, creating it in the space because it's always nice to kind of twist and stretch what an exhibition is and sort of change people's you know ideas of what an exhibition will be. And for yeah. me, I'd rather be there drawing and kind of, you know, beer in one hand and, a you know, a sort of uh, a marker in the other hand and just go, getting in the zone and just creating. And so that's what I'm going to be doing for a few of these shows. I'll have paintings, I'll have neon stuff, but then a lot of it will be hand finishing and just basically drawing on walls. Nice, because everyone does love that little bit of embellishment, don't they? On, yeah, on an artwork, on, especially if it's majority prints or stencils, if there's something yeah. a little personal, especially if they see it in person. I mean, that's why when you go to, you know, cities abroad and you've got the guy there with the spray cans and, you know, making little space scenes, if you like. Yeah, and then, space scene guy. They're, they're always popular. He gets around, doesn't he? <laughs> he he does, guy. yeah. But yeah, they're always going to sell because it's it's within the instant. You know, they've had they've bought into the experience of the artwork, not the artwork itself. You know, it yeah, sort of adds something to it, doesn't it? People don't really kind of see the artist actually making artwork. I'd like to do a TV show, actually, like a late night TV channel. The new Bob you Ross. Get home from the pub, and you can just turn on and you can just watch someone making a painting. Yeah. You know? And even if that takes like three hours, you could be, you'd be transfixed. Of course. Just to see where the next brush mark goes. Yeah. And lastly, Charlie, sorry, where would people find you, be it a website or social media? PureEvilGallery.com, Pure Evil Gallery on Instagram and all that other stuff. And then we have two spaces in Shoreditch. So Excellent. Pure Evil Gallery on Leonard Street. Um, and my, my lovely assistants are probably in there right now, just packing up boxes and, you know, sort of finishing off framing and stuff like that. I'm lucky enough to be out in the countryside, just making art out here. And why not? Yeah, exactly. And, and all um, prospective artists with a portfolio welcome in the gallery. Yeah, email <laughs> us, because then I can look at it. If you, if you pop into the, into the actual gallery with a folder you know, drop it off and leave it there for a bit. And then if I'm yeah. in, I'll check it out. Right, mate. Well, thank you very much for your time. That's all my questions asked. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you very mate. Much. Thanks for, um, yeah, thanks for all your time. It's longer than I was expecting, but we did go off on a couple of tangents. It's good to go off on the tangents, uh, the tangents that life takes us. Charlie, all the best, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, dude. Speak Appreciate soon. it. Bye-bye. Well, Hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon, leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast, or even giving us a positive shout out on your social media. Anything is appreciated, but either way, thanks for listening, and until next week, sad art.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>